Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, digital agency owners and podcast listeners. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you currently stressed out, cash crunched, or fed up with your business? If you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem, or maybe that it's the area you live in, or maybe this market has become too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around, and I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now that it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who comes to you saying they need a website or Facebook ads or maybe a mobile app developed, but they don't even realize the deeper challenge or opportunity that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a YouGurus strategy call where we'll dig into those underlying issues and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your strategy call. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start your application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. All right, let's introduce today's guest. Hello, hello, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another great episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm so glad to have you guys with us today. Um, today our, on our program, we are joined by Andy Budd, who is the user experience designer and CEO of ClearLeft. And Andy is a best-selling tech author. He curates the UX London and leading design conferences. Uh, and he helped set up the Brighton Digital Festival, and as well as Andy created Silverback, a low-cost usability testing application for the Mac. He co-founded FrontDeck, a web typography startup. Andy is a regular speaker at international conferences like South by Southwest, uh, an event apart, the next web. Uh, and he's never happier than when he's diving in some remote, scuba diving in some remote tropical atoll. He's a qualified paddy dive instructor, retired shark wrangler. Uh, and the list does go on, folks. He actually um, also uh, created a conference for digital agencies called Founders Assembly, as well as he uh, maintains a Slack community for mid-size agencies. Andy, you're, uh, I, I could probably keep going in terms of the relevancy <laughs> that you have for our audience, the accomplishments that you've had. Um, and I just want to welcome you to our program, Andy. Oh, well, Brent, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, you know, a big fan of the show, being an agency founder. Um, I'm always trying to consume really interesting podcasts that will help me be a better founder. So, you know, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no worries. And and I just, you know, full disclosure is kind of funny. So when I, um, Paul Boag uh, introduced us um, and when I asked you to be on the podcast, you know, I have this uh, guest prep page that I send people and I really try to, um, you know, ha help uh, the people, the guests that we have on the show focus on like one pivotal moment. And 
uh, Andy kind of said, you know, uh, I think you, you, the exact quote was, I don't really have a single story or meaningful event. Um, you know, life has been pretty straightforward at Clear Left. We've had our ups and downs like most agencies, but nothing worth filling a whole 45 minute discussion about. And I pushed further. I was like, you know what? I kind of called, not, I didn't call BS on it, but I said, you know, I think, I think that we still have a lot to learn uh, from Andy. And, um, and, and what you said to me, Andy, and during our pre-show interview, I just want to, and this is going to be our starting point where we go to, is you're not a big fan of this big superhero idea that people have this one pivotal moment. It's more of a thousand tiny things. So that's a different, that's, at some levels, that's a different philosophy than some people have around having this one moment or a couple of moments in their entrepreneurial career. You have like a, a lot of smaller successes that you're telling me has led to uh, where you got to today. So how has that happened for you? Well, you know, as you said, I think, I think in our society, we like to sort of mythologize stories. We like to put ourselves in the center of those stories and, and build up this sort of heroic sort of hero's journey around it. And um, I get that. It's a great way of communicating value. It's a great way of selling your unique sort of services or proposition. But a lot of the time I don't buy it. A lot of the time it feels like it's um, like you know, a bit of sort of a fiction, a bit of fakery. You take a single moment and you make it much more pivotal than it actually was. And I generally believe that, you know, as humans, our culture, our character, our personalities are not made up of a few big pivotal moments that might make a great, you know, hour and a half TV show or movie, but are actually the sum total of all our accumulated experiences. And actually it's the thousands of smaller things that we do every single day that make us, not the one or two big things. And so, you know, I, get, I mean, I guess also not, not wanting to get sort of too hippie sort of right early on in the, the call, because <laughs> I'm, I'm generally not a very, you know, spiritual guy. I mean, I'm kind of based in the UK. I'm not in sort of California. Um, but I kind of have a slightly sort of sort of just Taoist, I guess, sort of approach to life, which is, you know, you just accept what comes to you. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, and you don't dwell on stuff. So I try not to dwell on the past. So I haven't kind of got this big backlog of all these amazing, exciting kind of, you know, heroic, things that I've somehow swooped in and solved. Life is just a lot of tiny little repositioning. You know, it's like if you're flying an aircraft, it's lots of tiny little movements that fly an aircraft, not these big sweeping dramatic things. And so, yeah, life is just a bunch of small little course corrections. And I guess also, I've always been more focused on looking to the future rather than looking to the past. You know, I think you, you know, I think it's sensible to try and learn from, from your mistakes, but, um, like I say, mythologizing them and turning them into some big heroic thing just doesn't really fit with my culture. Now, maybe that's because I'm British. Now, maybe <laughs> there's something about the kind of the Englishman in me that doesn't like to brag or doesn't like to, you know, make a fuss. And I'm sure if I was in North America or in California, I'd be, you know, like, yeah, I, I'm not, not meaning to sort of, you know, stereotype your, you know, um, North America. But you, you see all these kind of stars' journeys that they'll go... And, and they'll have a, you know, a drinking problem and they'll go an opera and they'll tell all about the drinking problem. Everyone thinks they're so brave. And then they bounce back and then they'll become, you know, X-Man, you know, or, or, or Iron Man or whatever. <laughs> and these, these, these stories are big and they're bold, but actually, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're they're just stories. So, um, and I wonder yeah, I if I struggle with that. If I wonder if, uh, I mean, maybe the closer we all get to Hollywood or growing up in the US where we've had a lot of that um, culture growing up with a lot of big hit blockbuster movies and packing as much drama and conflict into two hours as possible. But 
what I'm also, you know, what um, I recently shared a tweet uh, from Ryan Carson, which I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this know from, uh, I mean, he's done a lot of, you know, a lot for our industry, but currently is the, the CEO and founder of Team Treehouse. Uh, he tweeted the other day on August 4th, I'm continually reminded that the way to accomplish something massive is to have the discipline to do boring, hard, repetitive tasks daily. Uh, and, and I think he, you know, he has accomplished something massive. And I think even just in that tweet is very much in alignment with what you're saying. There's this external uh, highlight reel that a lot of people like to share and push and promote about themselves or about their business or about their service or about their product. Uh, but maybe the uh, behind the scenes, the back of the house, we, we talk about the back of the house a lot at you gurus with our, our, our customers and our students. The back of the house is sometimes a little bit messier or in some terms boring. Um, mm. And I think I'm, I'm hearing, think- you know, but at the same time, I look at some of your accomplishments and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, Andy has done a lot for our industry. You've taken some really, really big swings, but then you're also extremely humble and your approach to that is more is less about it being a big deal. And maybe that is a secret to your success. Maybe, yeah. Um, um, I mean, I, I think for me, I've been thinking about this today, actually. I'm, I'm about to give a talk on design leadership um, over in San Francisco in a few weeks' time. So sort of modes of leadership is really kind of interesting at the moment. And I guess there is this sort of like, you know, genius savant sort of um, type of leadership, you know, the kind of the classic creative director who knows all, sees all, is the best designer there is in the in, in the agency, is this kind of force for, for truth and, and, and everything that's great about design. And they hire a bunch of junior people and those junior people serve the master. And it's all about the master's story uh, and everyone else is running around, you know, kind of like, you know, the, the designer will do a sketch and all the other people will go away and kind of breathe that into life. And that's a very old fashioned form of leadership. It's a very madman form of leadership. It's, it's the way that you see a lot of um, architecture firms work because they'll have one genius architect and everyone else is supporting that. The problem with that approach is when that person retires or, or even dies, that, that agency, that organization kind of loses its focus. I've never been interested in these kind of big hero designers. And I've never been interested in that kind of, you know, one leader that pushes everything forwards. I guess my approach has always been more around a model of servant leadership. And the idea of servant leadership is the people who are the heroes in your company aren't you, they're the people you hire. You hire amazing people. You hire the best people you possibly can find. People that are so much better than you in every way. Because um, why would you do otherwise? Why would you hire people that you know are less good than you? That just seems bonkers so you hire people that are a better designer than you a better ux person a better developer you surround yourself by these amazing people and then your job as a servant leader is to create the environment where they can excel and so if anything you know my my role is kind of more of a parental role in some regards it's sort of it's squashing my own desires and my own abilities my own needs to be a hero in order to kind of provide time and space for everyone else to succeed so that's the thing that i enjoy most is kind of trying to create a great environment where people can do great work trying to bring in great products and, and projects and clients that other people can service so i never ever see myself at the center of that story i always see myself as a supporting role you know if i'm being a slightly egotistical I would like to see myself more as the Obi Wan Kenobi, but I'm definitely <laughs> not the Luke Skywalker or the Han Solo. That's for sure. And, and 
I, you know, uh, some some mentors of mine have said, you know, in terms of hiring smart people, if if you're the smartest person in the room. Uh, you've kind of failed building a great team, and if you are, uh, if you're surrounded by people that are smarter and more talented than you, uh, then you've you've done something well. But I think for a lot of, I'm just thinking about the early stage agency who is budget strapped, doesn't have a huge amount of capital, is probably bootstrapping the business, and when we when they hear us say something like hiring a senior UX person or somebody that is the rock star. All they're thinking of themselves is there's no way I can afford that. There's no way I can actually do that. Um, but what I'm also hearing from you is you really you, you shouldn't you can't afford not to do that. That if you hire junior people or people that aren't talented, that you're going to have to kind of babysit all the time, or you're going to end up having to do the work, or they're just always going to look to you as Luke Skywalker versus the other way around. Yeah, I mean, th- there's no there's no one right way of running an agency. You know, everyone's got their own unique characteristics. Everyone's got their own unique market. Um, I can't sort of talk about what the right way is. I can only talk about the approach that I took. And, you know, when I started my company, there were two or three of us. We were a very small agency. Like most people, we started in our bedrooms when we had very low overheads. But actually, because of that, you know, I think you know, we were at our most profitable in the first couple of years of our business because we didn't have an office to run. We didn't have loads of people to hire. But, you know, all of the founders were pretty good at their jobs, you know, design, development, UX. We also had a really, really good profile. You know, prior to starting our company, we'd been blogging when blogging was a thing still, and we'd been speaking at conferences and writing books. So when we started, we already had a bit of a, a reputation. And, you know, I can't, I can't kind of state too much the value of being known for doing one thing now that one thing could be anything you could be known as the best ux design agency in the world that's what i'd love clear left to be at some stage you know we've we're definitely in the maybe sort of top five or ten in in, in of our size in in that sort of space but you could also just be like the most reliable wordpress developer freelancer in your local town it doesn't really matter what it is that you do but I think it's much better to have this sort of blue ocean strategy and just pick a thing and do it really well. And if you can dominate in that one sector, then a lot of good things happen. First of all, you'll attract clients that want to work with the best. Secondly, you'll attract designers and developers that want to work with the best. And it only takes one or two and you build from that and you win some projects and you grow and you grow and you grow. I think the other thing, though, is, and again, it's something I say quite regularly, there's something weird about the psychology of of digital people designers and developers especially which is we have this sense that talent is everywhere because of all our friends are talented all the people we work with are talented the places we came from before were full of talented people so all we see is talent everywhere and what we think is rare is money because i don't know if you know i'm not a particularly wealthy person i don't know whether you're driving around in a big fast car and and driving boats and planes and and, and living in a millionaire's mansion that's definitely not my life and it's definitely not life of my friends. So I don't see money very regularly. But the reality is that talent is incredibly rare and money is, is everywhere. There's loads of money. There's big agencies out there. There's big organizations. And the thing that you and your listeners have is really unique and really special. And I think we have a real tendency to give, give away our services for cheap. And I think if there's one thing I'd like the, 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 the founders who are listening to the podcast to take away is, is to don't, don't do that. Now, that sounds a very kind of um, uh, spirited and kind of philosophical approach. But I think there's a way of, of basically constantly leveraging your, your, your assets. 
And I think for me, the real the real benefit is the power of saying no. And I learned this again in, in the first kind of like 18 months of running my agency. You know, we're doing we're doing loads of work and we're trying to make ends meet. And so we're taking on every project we could get hold of. And then suddenly our dream project will come along and we don't have the capability to do it. We don't have the capacity, so we turn it down. And then we take on all this other rubbish work and rubbish work. And then our next dream project comes along. We don't have the capability to do it or capacity to do it and we turn it down. And after the third time this happened, we're like, oh, there's a bit of a trend here. Maybe we should start saying no to the rubbish work. And as soon as we started saying no to the rubbish work, and that opened up capacity that when the really, really good projects came along, we could take them and deliver them. And, you know, a, a friend of mine, Blair End, who you probably might know, he's a great sure. um, uh, coach in, in, in this space, agency coach. He talks about um, hiring um, behind the pipeline instead of in front of the pipeline. And what that means is a lot of designers, a lot of agencies will try and build up capacity in the hope that they'll get work and then they can service it. And that means that you're constantly, you know, in a weak position. You're constantly, when you're trying to negotiate for work, you desperately need that work to fill that gap. And so you're often, you know, willing to compromise. Whereas if you have so much work that you can't, um, can't service, then that puts you in a power position. That means that you can say no to work that you don't think is going to be fulfilling or good for your portfolio and you're able to say no to work that is 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 lower um you know lower value and and that then puts you in a position of power and so i guess one of the things we've always done as clear left is we've tried to grow slowly we've tried to grow behind the pipeline instead of ahead of a pipeline and we've wanted to be in a position where we've always got two or three leads where we can you know only sort of take one or two projects on now that's not always the case and there are sometimes times when you've got to you know, do work that you don't feel is is particularly fulfilling or or, or or matches your skills but where you can you can manufacture the situation where that happens less and less and ultimately i'd say that any agency is only as good as their last couple of projects and if your last couple of projects are not very good then you know you're you're, you're going to struggle to get that next piece of great work I think the other thing is constantly for every single project you do, the next one, try and make it a little bit bigger. It doesn't mean putting your prices up by much, but, you know, when we started at Clear Left, you know, our first project maybe was $5,000 and we really struggled to deliver a great project. And so the next one came along, we, we put it to six and the next one to seven, the next one to eight. Now our average project side is like, you know, $200,000, $300,000. Um, but we didn't start out of the gate servicing massive clients we just did it one small project at a time which is again you know there was no you know there was no hero project that came along that kind of took us you know like prince charming from, from <laughs> you know, cinderella to the playing in the big leagues playing at the ball it was just lots of small little decisions that kind of meant that we grew and we got better and as we did better work we got better known we got better reputation and so I think it's all these small things that are much more important than, than the big power moves. Interesting. And, and just even that, I mean, growing slowly, but growing steadily, which it sounds like you have done. Uh, mm. I mean, I'm just thinking about the, you know, the eighth wonder of the world, the power of compound interest, right? Of, yeah, okay, you know, growing at five or 7% doesn't sound like a lot year to year. But if you're talking about a 10 year period of time, that is, you know, that becomes very significant or a 15 year period of time or a 20 year period of time. Uh, and I think a lot of people 
probably overextend themselves at some point. Mm-hmm. Whether you, it sounds like you haven't, you've been uh, reserved on that, which uh, you know comes back to probably some of your philosophy. Um, so when you say, I mean, I think this is it. Oh, sorry, sorry for cutting you off there. But yeah, you good. Touch on one of your points, which was when we started um, our agency. It was the end of the sort of first dot com boom. And I'd seen so many agencies run by friends of mine that had boomed and busted that, you know, one day they were 10 people, the next day they were 30, the next day they were 20. And they were constantly, like almost every kind of couple of months, like growing really quickly and then shedding loads of stuff. Um, and it, sure, it was really exciting for them. Um, but what it meant is that people started not wanting to go work for them because they were worried that mm. they'd get laid off in a couple of months' time. And, you know, the quality of the work kept on dipping because they they were having to feed all these mouths. And I see, you know, and I saw that and I just thought, I never want to be that agency. If, I, if people are going to come and join Clear Left, I want them to know that if they wanted it, they've got a job for life. Now, nobody wants a job for life, but I want people to come and work for Clear Left and feel that they're being, you know, looked after, that, that there's a safe pair of hands steering the ship. And we're not going to do anything that might jeopardise it. Because if you want to get really, really great, designers working for you or developers working for you it's not all about the money you know actually i find that money are table stakes you know you've got to have a certain amount for the, the designers or the developers to kind of pay their mortgages and and, and you know um you know cover all the expensive expenses but what designers really want is a constant supply of really great challenging work same for developers um uh, they also want to be working with a great team of people where they can learn and they can grow and they can prosper so if you can create a safe, stable environment where people can do the best work of their career, then the financial remuneration is less important. It's not not important at all, but it's definitely less important. And so we've done everything we could as a company to grow slowly and steadily and behind our pipeline and never, thankfully, touch wood, had to make any layoffs. You know, we've never had to lay anybody off at all in our 12 years of business. Whereas a lot of my friends, you know, I've got an agency friend in the UK that just laid off 12 people in the last month. You know, they grew too big, overstretched themselves. And a lot of it is just about kind of like, you know, smart economics as well. Um, A lot of agencies, I think, particularly um, like to win a really big client. And, you know, who doesn't like to have a really big client? Unfortunately, when your client contact leaves or when that client's business starts to struggle, you know, you might lose them and all of a sudden 80, 90 percent of your income goes. And so I think, you know, we've always tried to diversify our portfolio. We've always tried to make sure that we have no single client that's bigger than about a third to a quarter of our revenue. We actually prefer to have lots of smaller clients and and have those clients sort of changing quite regularly rather than relying on one one big client. And the same is true of sectors. And a lot of agencies that will um, focus on one particular sector. And, you know, 2008, the financial crisis hit, and there were a whole bunch of sectors that really struggled, you know, um, whether it was the banking sector, whether it was the, the charity sector, whether it was the local government sector. Those people suddenly had no money, and all of those agencies went bust. For us, because we try to diversify our portfolio in terms of our client work as well, you know, we might have lost a couple of clients in one sector, but a whole bunch of other clients in a different sector popped up. And so it's just this kind of steady, steady growth. And I think the final thing that we did, which, um, you know, was born out from maybe our conservatism, um, a lowercase c, is we always wanted to have at least sort of three months worth of, you know, money in the bank, ideally six. And that meant we didn't have to be very good with our finances because we always knew, you know, we weren't chasing invoices, we weren't tracking invoices super detailed because we knew that we always had enough money in the bank to last three months with absolutely no income. 
And those kind of those kind of couple of, of, of pointers, really, really simple heuristics, really, are the things that have meant that we've we've been relatively successful. Now we're not huge. As an agency, we're 30 people, but we're 12 years old and we're very good at what we do and we've got a great you know um, position in, in the, the industry. And I'd prefer to be 30 people and 12 years old than peaked at 60 or 70, but then no longer be in existence. <laughs> yeah. I, I um you know there's a concept called you know creating a safety margin whether you're working on engineering projects or uh, your own personal finances and I think you've just brought up a couple of points that fit within this idea of safety margin one is just straight up having a cash buffer uh, and not uh, spending that for growth or overextending yourselves and I, I feel like there's and maybe it comes out of that that mindset issue that you spoke on earlier around. Uh, and I, I call this the, or it, it's called an availability bias that we in our industry, mm -hmm. we have, we see talent everywhere. So in terms of our bias, it seems like there's web designers, developers, UX people like hanging off street signs. Uh, and then the, for a lot of people, I know at least from my own experience, those first five, six years of running an agency, money was not abundant. And so it, it programs, I think, a, uh, an availability bias in us that m money is not um, available. And so we have some of those those biases and that mindset that's kind of pre-programmed. So I don't know if a lot of people, once they start getting success, they just kind of stay in that mode of, hey, half a month of expenses. I mean, I think there's a, there's a quote out there, you know, every agency is is two weeks away from going out of business, which is probably, I don't know if it's every agency, but probably a lot of them are mm. sitting on two weeks of cash flow, which puts them in a precarious situation where maybe they are put into uh, significant ups and downs. I mean, maybe that's why we have so many... Uh, uh, pivotal mm. stories on the digital agency show is that so many people are putting themselves into these precarious situations and you've said no i don't really like that we're going to run a little bit more conservative we're going to have this three to six month safety margin we're also going to uh only fill a you know behind the pipeline in terms of staff we're not going to staff up and then go try to find work we're going to find the work and then slowly staff up or keep uh, you know, not taking on large, massive projects that would overstep our portfolio. And I think that conservative, I almost would look at it like a, if you have a, a frugal mindset in your personal finances, you guys have kind of a very frugal, which isn't necessarily cheap or low inexpensive. It's just a frugal, like you guys are very uh, conservative about how you approach your business decisions from taking yeah. on clients, cash flow management, acquiring additional team members and that conservative approach has actually kept your road maybe a little bit less bumpy than the average agency? I, I think that's absolutely true. And like I said at the start, I don't think there's one perfect way of, of running an agency, but I think at the end of the day, it's useful for agency founders to have a really good understanding of, of why they're running an agency. Um, I think some people, they want to run an agency because they want to grow it, they want to sell it, they want to make a bunch of money. Um, and they want to go and drive boats or cars or planes. I think other people, um, they want to run an agency because they want to have an income. And actually, you know, they want to be spending that money on, you know, as they go on holidays and, and other things and, and having a nice house and, and going and eating meals. And, and in that instance, like in the first instance, if you're growing to flip it, you're going to want to grow really, really fast and a really, really high pace and get a high valuation. And so a lot of my friends that have kind of boom and busted is because they've been chasing that exit. A lot of my other friends that are kind of, you know, driving nice cars and what have you, that's why they've only got two weeks worth of pipeline or two weeks worth of money in the bank, because 
they're viewing their business as an extension of their own personal bank account. And every time they get a little bit of money in, they spend it. Even when we started as a company at Clear Left, you know, Clear Left for us was a company. It was a third entity. It was a thing that we had a duty of care to look after. It wasn't our kind of pot of cash to be drawing from. And actually, right from the start, we were very, very frugal. You know, we, we, we wouldn't take money out. We'd build up the war chest. We'd build up the war chest. I would only sort of take money out if we had that three to six month buffer. Um, and that meant that, you know, we, we you know, our, our first five or six years of business, we were, you know, we were not exactly rolling in it. But it meant that we had consistency. And I think ultimately what I guess what I value more than having a little bit of extra spare spending cash is to have emotional security, I guess, effectively. Um I mean, uh, I don't know if you know about uh, Project Aristotle. Um, it's a it's a big project that Google did to look at how um, what what the factors are of really high performing teams. Obviously, they're looking at design teams in Google, but I think the same could apply for other organisations. And the biggest predictor of of um, uh, success was sort of emotional security, and that emotional security meant that you weren't constantly you know, being, you know, um, I guess in terms of Google, you're, you're, you weren't being second guessed, you weren't being shot down, you know, it was safe to fail. In a design agency context, you know, if every day you're going in and you're having to make life or death decisions around your business, you're going to get old really quickly. You're going to get stressed. You're going to get ulcers. That's no way to live. Um, and we wanted to avoid all of that, um, all of that stress. And so we did it in a way that we built up the agency in a really steady pattern. Now, I have a, a feeling that that might be a difference between um, European culture and North American culture. Um, you know, uh, and there were some really interesting studies around the TV show, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Mm-hmm. And we have that in the UK and you have it in, in North America as well. And in North America, um, there's this kind of weird thing in the game show. I get it slightly wrong, but like you can maybe, you can earn $32,000 and walk away and not lose anything. But if you kind of bet the next level, like 125, you might lose that 32K. And they looked at like the betting patterns of North Americans. And the North American psychology was always, I came into this show with nothing. I want to be a millionaire. So I'm going to go for it. And if I fail, that's great. Because I start with nothing, I end with nothing. But I want to have the chance of being a millionaire. And so many, many more players took the risk and many more players lost it. But more players overall won the million. In the UK, it was completely the opposite. People got to that 32 level and was going, well, look, I don't really want to risk it. I came with nothing. £32,000 is an awful lot of money. Um, I could go and pay off my debts and go on holiday and yada, yada, yada. I'm not going to risk it. And, and I think that plays out, you know, that that's possibly why there are bigger startups in, in North America and why the valuations are bigger and all of that stuff. And maybe why in the UK we're much more focused on R&D and design and, and getting things off the ground than we are kind of capitalizing them and, and leveraging them. So I think there are some fundamental cultural differences that probably mean, you know, we've we've run the business slightly more conservative than maybe we would have done if we were surrounded by people who were flipping their businesses for multi-millions of pounds. But um, I don't know. I'm happy with the choices we made. <laughs> I, I feel like if somebody is listening to this show right now and they're feeling emotionally insecure about their business or they're feeling stressed 
uh, more so stress than just I have a big deadline coming up, but that life and death stress with life and death with, with a business, like my business is going to fold tomorrow or it's not. I have to have that conversation every single day. Um, I feel like if you're in that mode of thought, maybe a good course of action would be to import a little European uh, frugality into your business or your mindset of not trying to go big all the time. And it is, I mean, I, obviously if they've done studies in this and I, I've, I've grown up in the U S so I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, uh, that, that, um, that culture is very prevalent. It's the, you know, even Mm. just looking at our TV shows beyond, um, that show of, uh, you know, the entrepreneur related shows like, um, the profit or shark tank or whatever, like, Oh, I can go on a TV show and in three minutes I can raise a million dollars. And you know, the average person doesn't probably even understand the implications of taking a million dollars in investment. And what, what does that actually mean? Does that make them a millionaire? Of course not. It puts a huge obligation to the business to provide an ROI to the investors, but that, there is a cultural thing. And I don't think Based on, I mean, I've talked to thousands of agency owners, and I've worked with many, many of them deeply in their business, and I'm not sure that that mindset of trying to make it big is necessarily serving, and I feel like for most people, they would be better off to adopt more of your mindset, Andy, of you know, increasing that uh, safety uh, margin increasing their Mm -hmm. cash balance, maybe saying no to more projects or being a little bit more reluctant to hire uh, a big staff member or or multiple staff members, unless you have that, that work uh, booked out ahead of you. You know, what are, what are some of the things that you've learned that people can do to uh, get support for that? I think being an agency founder can actually be a very lonely um, position. Uh, If you're lucky, you'll have other co-founders And in my experience, the perfect number of co-founders is maybe two or three. I've met friends of mine that have agencies that have got seven or more co-founders, and that can be a real challenge because you're not always pulling in the right direction. And at the same time, if there's just one of you, it can be really isolating. And a lot of small businesses, they are founded by just a single co-founder. And no matter how good the team you've got, no matter how supportive you have in terms of designers or developers or business people, or if you're a bigger team, maybe you've got a director, you know, set of directors or board. Um, they can't really understand the pressure that you're going under because at the end of the day, all of this stuff rests on your shoulders. You know, their livelihood, your livelihood, your home's probably on the line if you've got debts, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really, really difficult for anybody who isn't been in that situation to really appreciate that. And so the thing I would suggest is to reach out to other founders. And one way of doing that is to, you know, approach people whose agencies that you respect. Maybe they're in the local neighborhood. Maybe they're people that you've heard interviewed on this, t- on, on this radio show, radio show podcast, showing my age there. Um, <laughs> and um, reach out. I know it's terrible, isn't it? But reach out to people and just go for a coffee and have a chat. Some of the best stuff I've learned about running my agency hasn't been from making the big mistakes. It's been from sitting down with people who I admire at conferences who are maybe three or four years ahead of me in terms of their growth and them telling me about all the mistakes they've made. You know, I remember sitting down with a really, really prestigious agency and they were telling me how they were really struggling to make the jump between 30 people and 60 people and how when they were 30, they were a big fish in a small pond and everyone knew who they were and they were super well-respected. As soon as they jumped up to 60 or 70 people, 
suddenly they were a minnow against these like thousand, five thousand, ten thousand person mega agencies, and they were being crushed. They were literally being crushed. And you know, hearing that experience and hearing them talk about having a taking a run up to growth like two or three times, and each time being knocked back it kind of made me realize that I didn't want to go through that challenge <laughs> and that actually I wanted to stay, you know, a relatively small agency. And I think, you know, clear left we're 30 people now. I can't imagine it's ever being bigger than sort of 50 or 60. And I don't want to ever be like a, a, a mega agency because I think the hernias and, and the, 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 you know, the kind of the stress would be far too much. And actually I spoke to somebody who was, um, uh, you know, worked at a very large agency and they always talked about, and, and, you know, this is an agency that had a few thousand people and they talked about how their bosses were constantly managing the company through fear. Cause you would think, uh, you know, a multi hundred or thousand person agency, everyone would be loaded, but all these people had houses they couldn't afford. They had cars they couldn't afford. They had two or three, you know, ex partners they couldn't afford maintenance for. And every single decision they made was done out of fear rather than out of positivity. And so I try to avoid that. Um, so, so find people that you can talk to who you admire, who you've been, who have been through it before. And my experience is most agency founders and most people in the design world are more than happy to kind of talk to you. Um, I sort of decided to, to go one better. So after, after three or four years of having these conversations, maybe every three or four months at a conference, I wanted to kind of formalize it. So I started a dining club in Brighton. So now once a quarter, um, I've got a pool of about 20 or 30 agency founders and probably once a quarter we get 12 or 14 of them together to go out and have dinner one evening and we all pay and we pick a nice restaurant and we talk and we chat and that sharing of information again has, has bubbled up so many useful things that I never never ever knew was something to, to, to think of so for instance it's a little bit grisly but I remember sitting opposite a, a, an agency founder in Brighton who was telling me about how their business partner had just passed away and that was terrible and it was a, it was a horrific thing because this person was a, was a really good friend. But because they hadn't had insurance and because they hadn't like um, figured out all the details in advance, that co-founder's shares naturally found their way into the, the hands of that co-founder's partner. And that co-founder's partner had no interest or capability of, of running an agency, but they were now co-founders. Um, and, you know, the sensible thing would be to buy the shares back off that partner, uh, that partner's sort of, you know, deceased partner. Sorry, too many partners there, but you know what I'm saying, <laughs> to, to buy the shares back. But then there was this massive discrepancy around what he valued the business at and what this other person valued the business at. And it turned out that this, you know, this was such a painful process. They had to get arbitration from a third party. And, and it took a huge amount of time. It took a you know, took this founder's, you know, eye off the business for a year or so, at the same time as having lost a really good friend and a really good, you know, um, collaborator. And that immediately got me thinking, this is a really terrible situation. I don't want that to happen. And then we went out and we talked to our solicitors and we found out there was insurance that you can do to kind of avoid these problems and stuff. But had we not known, had we not had that conversation, we would have, you know, we could have found ourselves in a similar situation. Um, so these dinners are really good. And then off the back of these dinners of last year, I started a little mini conference. So basically, rather than having ad hoc dinners, I invited 50 people together to gather in London. We brought a bunch of people over from the States who were really good agency founders I admired, a bunch of people that had run agencies in the UK. And we just spent a day talking about their, their founder journeys. 
and and how they grew their businesses and, and the challenges they had. Now, effectively, I guess, you know, like this conversation we're having now, if you imagine, a, you know, like eight, nine, ten of your best episodes all strung together out of a single day. And that was really good, just the dissemination of information. But the thing that I hadn't quite realised is the hallway conversations and the coffee conversations and the dinner conversations. And the fact that these people, over the course of a day, because it was only a day-long conference, started building up a network of friends and supporters and people that had gone through similar um, experiences. And it became really cathartic. And all these people started to kind of almost have like these emotional moments when they'd fa suddenly found people that they could sort of trust and talk to and, and open up to. And so off the back of that, we started a, a little a agency founder Slack channel. Um, and actually, if your audience members wanted to join, I'd, I'd love to kind of, um, you know, have, have some more people from North America join at the moment. We've got about 80 members from the UK, maybe 20, 30 from Northern Europe and about 20 or 30 from the US. Um, it's aimed at people that are kind of running mid-size agencies. So mid-size agency is typically, I don't know, like 15 people plus and probably turning over a million, a million and a half dollars in, in turnover. Um, and so if, you're, if you've got listeners that are running small, you know, some mid-sized agencies that kind of fit that profile, up to maybe 80 people and up to maybe, you know, five, you know, five million, $10 million. Um, if they want to kind of join this sort of community of, of, of design agency leaders, I'd love to kind of um, be put in touch. So yeah, drop me an email or, or go on to Twitter. I'm just Andy Budd, um, A-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D -D on Twitter. Reach out. I'd love to chat and maybe you could come and join that community. Yeah, that'd be great. And and just in, in terms of, I mean, our, our business, we definitely, you know, are much more of an early stage accelerator for agencies. And I know there's a lot of folks because we bring on such great guests that are that more mid-size that are listeners that you gurus doesn't necessarily service quite as much in terms of our programs and our communities. So um, we'll definitely link out to um, ways that people can get in touch with you about that. Uh, I do want to shift now to our lightning round. Are you Are you ready for this? Shoot, and I'll see what I can do. Uh, what is the, in this conversation overall, I mean, has been fascinating for me. I think your mindset around your business is, um, it's, it's very much refreshing and I just, I've appreciated this conversation so much, but our first question is what is the best advice you've ever received? Um, well, I think we probably touched on it before. I think the best advice I ever received was to constantly be making yourself redundant. So, you know, in order to work on your business, not in your business. You constantly need to be finding the things that other people can do and get them to do them. So you can focus on the things that only you can do. And I think if you grow your business based on that, you'll, you'll have a very successful business. That's awesome. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Ah, uh, oh, um, I guess I like talking and like talking to people. I mean, I'm really, I love this industry. You know, I started as a designer, just noodling around in code as a, as a hobbyist. So I, I, I have a huge passion for the industry and I want to see it better. I want to see people improve. And, and so, yeah, that, I guess that desire to share and to, to have conversations and to push things forward. I kind of generally think that, you know, you know, I, I feel really, really, proud to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants there's loads of people that have come before me that have made the web a great place and made the industry a great place and if you can carry on doing that and you can carry on pushing it forward everyone benefits so i guess you know that dogged wanting to kind of improve and it's the designer's mindset i mean the downside of that is 
I'm constantly dissatisfied with everything. Every interaction I have, I think, oh, wouldn't it be better if they did this? Every time I buy tickets from a, a ticket machine, I'm frustrated because it's a little bit broken <laughs> and, and could be improved. But that, that ability to spot problems and that ability to know that you can solve those problems, I think is the thing that drives me and frankly, mankind forward. So yeah, that's it, I guess. Is there an internet resource or tool that you use uh, that you think our listeners would find value in? Um, ah, the, the challenge is there's so many now. I mean, if you'd have asked me a year or so ago, I would have said I get most of my industry knowledge through Twitter now. However, Twitter's turned into a bit of a, a, a toxic swamp. So I actually sort of try and stay away from that more and more these days. I'm still on there, but I'm using it more as a broadcast tool than a, than a, than a, a consumption tool. I don't know. I mean, for me, conferences. I love going to conferences. I love going to events. Um, not only because you can hear amazing speakers talking about a whole wide, diverse range of topics, but you get to meet people. You get to have back sort of, um, you know, sort of hall conversations. And so, I, it's not a it's not a particular resource as such, but but conferences. And if you're looking to go to a good conference, you know, it's still, you know, I guess the granddaddy of conferences. A lot of people complain about it. South by Southwest is big, it's huge, it's gnarly, um, but but it's got so much diversity there. It's a really interesting shot. So if you've not been there before, something like that. And what book would you recommend and why? Ooh, interesting. Um, this is this is slightly well. It's not really slightly self-serving, but I think I think one of the best books to come out for the design industry of late has been Design Sprints by Jake Knapp. Um, Jake Knapp is an ex-designer from Google Ventures. He invented or, or kind of popularized this concept of doing Design Sprints. Um, and Design Sprints are basically a, a short, week-long spike of activity that you can do with a client. Um, it's a great way, if you're an agency, to prove to a client that you're good at what you do. Um, so as a company like ClearLeft, we will refuse to do any creative pictures at all. We think creative pictures are bad and toxic and are basically give away the one unique thing that you have. But what we might do is you might suggest to a client, we'll come, do a design sprint with us, pay us for a week's worth of work. You'll get to see how we operate. You'll get to see the value we can deliver in a week. And if we can deliver that much value in a week, imagine what we could deliver in a month, two months, six months. Um, so the design sprints book, I think, is a great way of, of, of explaining that. And also, we've had the, the pleasure of hosting Jake Knapp um, over in the UK, so he's doing a workshop for us in a month or two's time. It's sold out, which is why it's not a, a plug. But Jake's coming over and, and going to be talking to about 100 people in London around how to do great design sprints. And so I think that would be my, my top book. Excellent. And how can our audience uh, find out more about you? And do you have anything for them? And I know we've already mentioned uh, potentially your Slack channel, which we'll, we'll include links to. Uh, anything else? Yeah, um, you know, come and hit me up on on Twitter. You know, I, you know, much as I you know find it a little bit of a, a challenging environment at the moment, it's still the best place to connect to people. So I'm just Andy Bud, B U W D on Twitter. I do have a blog, which I occasionally blog at, nowhere near as much as I used to. But again, it's just andybud.com. And also, you know, I publish a lot on Medium, probably Medium slash Andy Bud, and on Clear Left blogs. Um, you know, so my company's blog. I'm writing a lot at the moment about everything from design leadership to digital transformation to the 
the changing role and nature of agency um, relationships with clients, which is something we never got to touch on. But hopefully I can come back again at some stage in the future and talk about whether the death of the agency is, um, is real or not. Absolutely. And Andy, this conversation has been super fascinating, full of gold nuggets for myself. I've got uh, a page and a half of notes. Uh, secretly, half of my podcast interview intention is for my own education and uh, uh, pulling out my own value. But I know from our listeners' perspective, uh, if you guys haven't pulled at least a dozen or more uh, nuggets for you guys to apply to your business or, or things to think about or talk to your uh, business partners about, um, you know, I think we've got uh, some, some great show notes in our future and some great resources that you've mentioned throughout this episode. Andy, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It's been my pleasure, dude. Thanks so much, Brent. All right, guys, that is it for this week's episode of the Digital Agency Show. Uh, Tune in for our show next week. Uh, Until then, I'm Brent Weaver. Thanks again for tuning in to the Digital Agency Show. Before we close out, I wanted to check in on your answer to my question from the beginning of the episode. Are you stressed out, cash crunched, fed up with your business? Now, if you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem. Maybe that it's the area you live in or that this market has gotten too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around. And I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now, it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who says they need a website, Facebook ads, or a mobile app when they don't even realize it's a deeper challenge that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a strategy call where we're going to dig into those underlying issues in your business and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments that you're going to have will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your YouGurus strategy call today. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start the application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for another episode of the Digital Agency Show. 